Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. You don't need me to tell you that we're living in particularly strange times at the moment. Dark, disturbing, depressing times. The summer of 2020 is marked by all sorts of unrest, which we cover on a daily basis. Some people say to me, well, how do you cheer yourself up? One way I personally cheer myself up is by sometimes watching the introduction to uh, D.A. Penica's wonderful 1967 movie, uh, Monterey Pop, with its uh, San Francisco soundtrack at the beginning, sung by Scott McKenzie. Uh, It's a film about a magical time, 1967, and seems to capture the particular magic of that period. Um, They were indeed magical years, the 60s, and and we need to figure out how to recapture them. One guy who was around in the 60s and is very much around today is my old friend Jonathan Taplin. Uh, He's a longtime Hollywood movie producer, uh, music uh, promoter, many, many things, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, author. He wrote a brilliant book, Move Fast and Break Things, one of the early critiques of Facebook and Silicon Valley. And he's got a new book out, which is coming out next year, which he's working on, which he previewed in, a, in an excellent Medium essay uh, entitled The Magic Years. Uh, John, uh, how did you pack it all into a, to a single life, everything you've done from movie producing to... Uh, music to entrepreneurialism to writing. How do you do? You not sleep down there in Pacific Palisades in Southern California. I think it was just lucky timing. You know, I mean, I I, I kept running into people who would introduce me to new people. I mean, I, obviously, it started when I was eighteen. Uh, I went to the Newport Folk Festival, and my brother knew a guy named Paul Clayton, who was an ethnomusicologist and was kind of an important guy in the early folk music movement. And he got me uh, what was equivalent to a backstage pass at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. And that, of course, was the year that Bob Dylan went electric. So um, Paul introduced me to the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which was managed by a guy named Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman managed Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Odetta, Richie Havens, pretty much everybody in the folk music business. And and Albert Grossman is um, memorably portrayed by himself in the the Pennebaker film about uh, Dylan. So uh, that's another essential viewing. Right. And so uh, Albert hired me to be the road manager for the Jug Band during Newport. And then after that was all over. And, and of course, that was an extraordinary weekend because Dylan just kind of on the spur of the moment decided that he would play electric music. Um, and 
Newport was a kind of cathedral of folk music, of acoustic music. And so this was a kind of very aggressive act on Dylan's part. And of course, he went up on stage with most of the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and not very well rehearsed and proceeded to essentially get booed off the stage by the folk music fans, which was astonishing. And it not was only astonishing, it was a remarkable achievement. I'm not sure if he meant to do it, but it certainly was one of his uh, great achievements in a career of great achievements. Exactly. To be booed off the stage by your own fans. Yeah. And then he uh, left Newport and, and he went off to find his own band, which was a group called Levon and the Hawks, which he eventually encountered in a bar in New Jersey on the Jersey Shore. And they were kind of a, a, a bar band, essentially. And uh, he, he hired them and they went out to Hollywood and played the Hollywood Bowl and that went much better. And eventually they started touring and I went back, went to Princeton and I would come and see them on weekends. And then eventually I started working for the jug band on weekends and then other Grossman acts. And, you know, they played this amazing music. Bob, in a concession to the folkies, would play the first half of his concert acoustic. And then he would come out with the Hawks and play the loudest damn music you ever heard. And it was extraordinarily good stuff. I mean, you can get it on a bunch of Dylan, um, reissues that have been put out of those live concerts and but they continued to get booed and they got booed everywhere they went around the world and so eventually uh the the hawks became the band and i started working with them in early 1969 and then i graduated from princeton and went to work full time with the band and then with Dylan and the band and we went to the Isle of Wight and, and so just one thing constantly nodded to another. We went to the Isle of Wight, the Beatles came to see Dylan at the Isle of Wight. I started spending time with George Harrison. He invited me back to his house after those concerts. Eventually George decided he wanted to do the concert for Bangladesh. So then I did that and then you know, a friend of uh, mine named Jay Cox, who was a writer for Time Magazine, I said I was going to go to California to see what was up there because most of the musicians that I liked had stopped playing. And um, I went out to California and Jay introduced me to this young film editor named Marty Scorsese. And I was so naive i didn't know that you weren't supposed to invest your own money in movies and i put up the money for a movie called mean streets and fortunately it was a really good movie and we sold it to warner brothers and then you know it's so a one thing right constantly so, led so to another so the rest is history uh dylan harrison scorsese and particularly in the late 60s early 70s what these people all seem to believe in collectively, although perhaps it was a bit more complex by the mid, by, by the late 60s, uh, was the future. And John, 
uh, you're older and perhaps wiser now. You have a, a really interesting essay out in, in Medium about why America is afraid of the future. It's a cultural critique. It goes without saying that you're no fan of Trump or of populist authoritarianism around the world. But I think perhaps what was particularly interesting to me about your essay was its cultural critique, the critique of a kind of cultural nihilism, both on the left and the right now of American culture. Yeah, I mean, what's disturbing to me is if you think about the 60s and you think about a song like uh, The Times They Are Changing or any of the Beatles work or, or much of the work of that period was always saying, we're moving towards the future. And if you don't want to come with us, get out of the way. Let us keep, let's keep improving the world. And of course, in the 60s, there was a totally tight connection between politics and culture. In other words, the music was an inherent part of the civil rights movement, was an inherent part of the anti-war movement. And what I see today is something that's very different. Uh, I find much of the music to be very dark, nihilistic. Um, you think about, you know, lots of the young rappers who are dead at the age of 30 and, and you know, a, a very kind of dark thing. But even in the television world, you think about what's popular, Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones or Succession or Westworld. They're all a very dystopian view of the world. And pretty much everybody who's on television is an anti-hero. I mean, the, the meth dealer in Breaking Bad. From The Sopranos on, it's been this kind of notion that the fix is in. And the only thing I could compare it to was to look back to the early 50s in, in a genre of movies which we called film noir, uh, in which, you know, this was right after the atomic bomb had been dropped. When I was growing up in the early 50s, uh, as a kid, you would, you would practice uh, duck and cover drills. You would literally, a siren would go off and everybody would get under their desk as if I was living in Cleveland, as if, if they dropped a bomb on Cleveland, getting under your desk would somehow save you. It was, it was crazy. But John, but, can I push back on a couple of things here? You know, I mean, I, I think that, um everyone will be in, in part sympathetic. But uh, I, I mentioned uh, Monterey Pop, two of the great stars of the Monterey Festival with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, of course, who, who experienced very untimely early deaths. There was a darkness also about the magic years, wasn't there? And uh, address well, that. And I also want to talk about your own particular kind of nostalgia or your and mine are, are boomer nostalgia for the 60s? Well, look, I mean, if you think about Jimmy's early work, like, are you experienced? It was all like, are you willing to take a chance? And, you know, it was clearly tied in with psychedelic drugs and stuff like that. And yes, you could say that was a darkness, but, but I would argue, A, that because I knew Janice and worked for her, she didn't mean to kill herself. 
This was not a death of despair, as Angus Stevenson calls it. This was just somebody who was playing around with heroin, having not been shooting for months and months and took too big a dose, you know. Angus, and, by the way, has been on the show and talked about his, uh, his work with his wife, uh, 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 Case, on, uh, on, the, on the death of despair. But, uh, so, uh, but let me also, so I, so I accept that. No, I, you know, I, 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 although I, I'm not really sure why, you know, if Hendrix, or, if Hendrix was around today, he'd be a rapper, right? Probably, probably, but, but he'd also be, I mean, he was a pretty joyous cat. If you, if you watched him on stage, it was pretty uh, up kind of experience. And, and you think about Sly and the Family Stone, or you think about a lot of the things that were very popular there. It was very hopeful, optimistic, you know, dance to the music kind of sense. And even Janice for, for all her stuff, you know, uh, you know, me and Bobby McGee is a pretty interesting song and, and, and not a dark vision at all. So, so what can we learn, John, from The Magic Years, both the book, which I'm really excited to read, which is coming out next year, and the experience in terms of the 2020s? What, what positive things can we learn? Well, my sense is that culture leads politics. And if culture does not lead politics, politics kind of wanders around in, in a sense. So if, if you think about the history of America, the cultural people, the artists have always been ahead of the politicians. So in the, the medium piece, I talk about the fact that Emerson and Thoreau were talking about being against the Mexican War or being against slavery in the 1830s. And by 1850, Abraham Lincoln had adopted their point of view of what needed to be done. If you think about in the 1870s, early 1880s, Mark Twain was writing about the Gilded Age and making fun of the plutocrats, the, the, the monopolists who were owning Congress and doing all that. And it wasn't until the early 20th century, 1905, 1910, that Teddy Roosevelt started taking on those plutocrats and trying to you know, break up the big monopolies. You think about the 1950s, the beats and the jazz musicians and, and that sense of a dissenting voice at the very point where the United States was the most conservative, most conformist place in the world. And yet that eventually led to the early 60s, where someone like Bob Dylan could be singing, blowing in the wind, times they are changing, you know, what we called protest songs. I don't hear a lot of protest songs right now. I, and I, I know that Kanye West thinks he's gonna, you know, is a genius and everything, but what good does that do me for him to wear a Trump MAGA hat and, and act, you know, so stupid in this situation where you, we need the artists to speak up. We need the artists to be saying, hey, get off your butt and get out and vote. And, and quite honestly, I see the sports stars 
like LeBron James, more involved politically than the music artists. And that's disturbing to me. Um, and that's not what the tradition of American artists pushing people to move towards change has been. John, how much of this, and you've written extensively on this, you and I have had many conversations about the impact of Silicon Valley, both on our own lives and on, on culture broadly. How much of this can be blamed on the, uh, on the platforms which seem to compound and encourage the kind of narcissism we now find in the White House, the YouTubes and the Instagrams and the, um, and the Facebooks of this world? I would say 80% of it can be blamed on that. In other words, I, I believe that social media is a net negative to society, that the, the ability to give everyone a platform for disinformation has completely clouded the minds of Americans. I mean, if you just think about what's going to happen in the next year, let's say optimistically by January or February, there's some sort of vaccine. I can promise you there will be a very large anti-vaccine movement on Facebook that will tell everybody that they shouldn't get this vaccine. So the whole theory with vaccines, if you don't get to 70% of the people taking the vaccine, it's of no use whatsoever. It's not going to solve any what they call herd immunity problems. And so this will happen. I promise you, there will be an anti-vax movement that will be come up on Facebook. And from Mark Zuckerberg's point of view, it's freedom of speech. It's just like his unwillingness to stop politicians from putting lies out. In other words, Trump can put up ads on Facebook that he could never put on network TV because they have something called standards and practices department. Right. So uh, to, 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 uh, to borrow your title, which you of course borrowed from Zuckerberg himself, uh, move fast and break things. What Zuckerberg has done has not only broken democracy, but perhaps our culture. Uh, John, let's talk about how we're going to get the magic years back. Does it require new technology or new technology companies? Because after all, we're not going back to uh, the acoustic or even the electric 60s. Right. Th these devices, like them or not, are with us, certainly for the rest of your and my life and probably for the rest of the century. So how are we going to resurrect culture? How are we going to jumpstart it? How are we going to enable conditions so we get a new Janis Joplin, a new Jimi Hendrix, a new uh, generation of, 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 media, of music, video, and, 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 and graphic artists who can, who can really present the future as an attractive thing? Well, I think... The first thing, it, it doesn't require new technology. I, I, I think what it does is require uh, a certain sense of responsibility on the part of the existing technology companies, and hopefully new ones will spring up, that are using uh, a social media in some sense. But the simplest thing for me would be to get rid of what is known as safe harbor. In other words, today, Facebook or YouTube can take absolutely hands-off responsibility for anything that's on their platform. In other words, someone puts up 
something is just outright nonsense, like this, you know, video about that if you know, hydroxychloroquine by that woman who said that you know they get DNA from aliens to make new drugs. Um, people who have, have know nothing but have a platform, and 15 million people look at this video in one day before it gets taken down. Well, look, if Facebook could be sued for putting up this disinformation, they wouldn't let it up in the first place. We all know that the upload filters take porn out of those networks, right? You never see out now porn oh, okay. on I, I get this, John, and I agree with you. And, and clearly that seems to be coming. That's on the horizon, even in, 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 a, in a sclerotic Washington, D.C. But whether or not Facebook is liable uh, for the, the lies that get published on the platform, How's that going to generate a new Hendrix, a new Joplin, a new Salvador Dali, people who are going to reach into our culture and grasp essential things that will capture a generation and renew a spirit of optimism and of hope? I don't see what harbor, safe harbor and that have to do with one another. Well, look, let's be clear. There are new voices out there. Who it's, are they? Give you me and I don't, well, I mean, Lizzo. For instance, I have a friend who's making a film on, on this singer, Lizza, you know, an incredibly politically oriented black artist who is making interesting music and everything. But if, if that work gets buried in a, in a kind of thing that you and something you and I have talked about, which is we always thought there was this notion of the long tail that Chris Anderson put out, which would mean that the small artists would get attention in this new world. But it turns out that when I was in the music business in the 70s, we used to talk about the 80-20 rule. In other words, 80% of the revenue of a record company would come from 20% of the content. It's the Pareto last, rule, essentially. Last year, 80% of the revenue came from 1% of the content. Mm. So the whole nature of the search engine and everything is to always advantage the most popular stuff. And very few people go below, below the fifth entry on Google when they're looking for search. And so it just tends to kind of, inf kind of influence and push everybody towards the top hits. So what happens is that Beyonce and Adele and Taylor Swift are doing really, really well. And the middle artist who might be the political artist, might be the Bob Dylan of this era, is hardly getting heard at all. They're getting buried in this. Now, look, I believe that Apple Music or Spotify or something like that could tweak their algorithm to constantly introduce me to new stuff. But they don't do that because they believe that if you don't get something that you already are inclined to like, you will click away. You will move away. It's just like Facebook's news algorithm. Facebook's news algorithm is constantly pushing you towards stuff that you already, they know you'll like. They never show you something that would counter your political point of view. So if you're 
a, a fan of Rush Limbaugh and Alex Jones, you're only going to get stuff on Facebook that reinforces your very narrow, balkanized point of view. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on Facebook. And I'm sure one of the things that you won't find on Facebook, and one thing that Facebook is not encouraging, uh, is the reading of, of your book, uh, Move Fast and Break Things, uh, or perhaps your upcoming book, The Magic Years, which is out in March next year. I'm really excited. You'll have to come back on the show to discuss it when the book's out. John, uh, you're down in Southern California in these weird times. Uh, finally, what should people be reading? What are you reading to keep yourself sane and perhaps optimistic in these strange, strange times? I've been reading a book called Why Nations Fail. Well, that doesn't um, sound very encouraging. By, by James Robinson and Darren Akimologo. And, and it is encouraging in the sense that you, it shows you why other nations have fallen apart. And it's not just the fall of Rome or all of that, but how democracy actually can get upset. You know, if you think about it, Germany in 1933 was a democracy. And, and so the, the rise of fascism, which is one I worry about right now in the United States, and it's not just what's happening in Portland, but it's lots of other things. This morning, Trump suggested that we might get rid of the elections or postpone them. You know, these kind of things happen slowly. And it's the classic, the frog being boiled in the pot, you know, you didn't know until it's too late. So. I mean, I, I think we have to be aware of this kind of normalized fascism that's being put in front of us. And, and hopefully, um, if we're aware of that, then we can, we can kind of inoculate ourselves. So when Trump sends these stormtroopers out in, in Portland to cause trouble, we can say, well, we've seen this before. And... We know this is just stuff for an, an ad campaign. And maybe the young people who think they're so brave to throw firecrackers at the you know, police station or the federal building will just move away somewhere else and, and go do their demonstrations so these people don't have the excuse to you know, tear gas them. And, and so, I mean, look, it's gonna take a lot of intelligence and um, hopefully, I, you know, I think things could change radically if, if the election, if Trump loses badly in the election, I think the whole country could change. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.